Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have a handsaw with bolt holes in the blade that don't line up with the holes in the handle? Do you have an old wooden plane with a mouth you could drive a truck through? Have you ever considered making your own hand tools? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 12 of the show for September 27th, 2017. Actually, it was supposed to be for September 27th, 2017, but I'm a little bit late this week. It's actually September 30th. Uh, work my my real my day job my work has uh, really been keeping me crazy busy um, for probably the last two or three weeks and it's just been a uh, absolutely nuts at work uh, and I haven't had time to do pretty much anything um, other than work so uh, sorry about the uh, the delay in the podcast but we'll try to get back on schedule for the uh, the next one. Uh, before I start today's show, I do want to take a minute to thank all the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Chakowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister K., Lawrence Polinsky, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, and thanks to a new patron this week, Jens Rosendahl. So thank you, Jens, and, and everyone for your support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash Woodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saving, saying thanks. So amidst all of the actual work that I've been doing with my day job, uh, I have actually been able to finish up one of the saws that I've been working on, um, and I actually was able to deliver that to its new owner this weekend. I still have a couple more to finish, but I've got to get some work done on the new cabin before I get back to those. Uh, we finally, finally were able to get someone out to pour the concrete floor in our garage and basement. So I need to get some final framing and electrical work done down there now that we have the floor in. And I've also got a little more exterior work to button up in the next few weeks. You know, it's starting to get much colder here in uh, the Appalachians very soon. And I want to make sure that I don't have to do any exterior work when the overnight temperatures start getting below freezing because that can make for some pretty cool mornings here. So I'll probably take a break from the shop for a couple of weeks just to try and get some things finished up on the cabin so that we can focus on interior work during the cold months. Uh, I've also been doing a little work cleaning up my YouTube channel. Uh, some folks have emailed me about what they thought were new videos that I had posted recently, but in fact, what I did was take one of the first few videos I ever made back in 2009 and I split it up into a couple of separate videos so that the individual topics were easier to search for. I'll be doing some new videos hopefully within the next few months, but not really quite ready just yet. So uh, I've got to get that cabin all, all closed up for the winter first. But enough cabin talk, let's get into our questions for the day. So our first question comes from Joe. Joe wants to know which machines would I recommend for dimensioning work in a hand tool shop. He says, my time is limited at the bench and I'm considering getting a joiner, planer, and bandsaw for rough stock dimensioning. Not looking to become a professional, but I'm also not looking to buy the cheapest tools available. 
I want good machines that are adequate for my needs as a hobbyist. Could you please help in terms of what you consider to be a good choice of brand and size? The joiner is where I need the most help. It almost seems like the sky's the limit, but how wide would you consider adequate? I'm guessing eight inches as I haven't had a need in two years for anything wider than that. And to be perfectly honest, most of the boards I use are eight inches wide or less. As for the bandsaw, I won't normally be breaking down thick stock. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he means sees that he's going to be staying four quarter and less. Uh, he's not going to be breaking down thick stock. Uh, also, I don't foresee needing to make my own veneer. I could see where I would use this to resaw three quarter inch board into two quarter inch boards rather than planing away half inch worth of good wood in the planer. I also worry about dust from power tools since I probably would only be dimensioning at best every other month. I could roll the equipment out of the garage into the side yard when doing this work. What do you think about dust collection? And in this instance, should I use a respirator or dust mask? So uh, a lot of questions there, Joe, but we're, we'll see if we can take them one at a time. So you're talking about getting a joiner and a planer and a bandsaw, and then also possibly some dust collection. So, um, you know, it's a lot of folks that work by hand certainly use these machines to uh, do their dimensioning because it's, you know, we'll face, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's a lot of work to do that work with hand planes, and it does take some practice to, um, you know, to be able to get good at it and to get consistent results um, and also to be able to do it somewhat efficiently. You know, it, it takes a little bit of practice to do that. So, um, you know, it's certainly uh, not a bad idea to have that joiner and planer for dimensioning your stock. And, you know, I'll even go and use, uh, the ones that we have at the school from time to time, just because it, uh, it, you know, if I've got a big project where I need a bunch of boards surfaced, uh, it does certainly save me some time. So, um, in terms of the joiner, I struggle with this one because, uh, while you mentioned that you don't really use boards wider than eight inches, and that may be so at this point, but, I guess what I would ask is where are you going with your woodworking and what do you see yourself doing a few years from now? Um, in my shop, I use a lot of stock that is wider than eight inches. So for me, most joiners are limiting. Um, you know, anything wider than eight inches is going to be a bit of a challenge to joint on an, a joiner that's narrower than the board. So, um, and you know, when you start to get into eight inch joiners, you're really talking about a good chunk of change there. So, um, you know, to me, that's a, a tough pill to swallow to, to be able to, to just face joint boards that are up to eight inches when I use so many more boards that are wider than eight inches. But again, that's me. If, if you really truly don't see yourself using boards wider than eight inches, then an eight inch joiner may suffice for you. But I think I would really question where you see your woodworking going as you start to do it more. And as you start to build more complex projects, um, it sounded from your email and, and I, I uh, trimmed it down quite a bit, but it sounded from the, the email that, you know, you were really just getting started. You've only been doing this for a few years. So I would say, you may not have experience with wider boards yet, but you may get there at some point. And as you start to build more complex projects and bigger things, you know, when you get into things like dining tables and um, case sides, those start to look kind of ugly when you start to use really narrow boards to glue up really wide panels.
And you'll find that a case side looks way better when you glue it up out of two boards than when you glue it up out of four or five boards. So um, in those cases, you're going to want wider boards than your eight inch board. So it's just something to keep in mind for the future. Um, you know, I, I personally for myself wouldn't bother with an eight inch joiner, but again, that's just me. Um, you know, it, I feel that it's quite a bit of money to spend for something that's going to limit you, especially when, if you, if you're looking at like lunchbox planers, benchtop planers, they can go 12 to 13 inches. So, I would feel kind of limited when my planer can do 12 or 13 inch wide boards and my joiner can't. So if if I was going to spend the money on a, a big joiner like that, an 8 inch joiner, I'd almost be looking at combination machines like a, a, a 10 or a 12 inch joiner planer combo. You know, you can get them for not much more money than that 8 inch joiner. Um, and then that would allow you to, to joint boards the same width as your planer can do. But I understand that it is a pretty good chunk of change when, you know, you can get a benchtop planer for five or $600. And, uh, you know, your 8 inch joiner, I guess, might be running about 1500 or so. So you're looking at, you know, low 2000 But you might be able to get into a 10 or 12 inch joiner planer for about the same amount, you know, maybe a little bit more. So just something to keep in mind. Um, but I would, I would probably not buy an eight inch joiner for me again, because of the type of work that I do. I use boards that are wider than eight inches all the time. Um, in terms of a planer, you mentioned the, the DeWalt, um, lunchbox planer. I think they work great. I had one years ago, uh, they do the job just fine. So I, I don't think you would go wrong there. Uh, bandsaw, I think I would be looking at one of the new steel 14 inch bandsaws, um, not just because of the way they're built and the, and the better resaw capacity of them, but for the dust collection capability, um, old bandsaws, you know, the old cast iron style, um, they just, they had terrible, terrible dust collection. And no matter what you did to try and help contain that dust, it really didn't matter the those 14 inch saws, those old cast iron frame saws were just terrible for dust collection and the new models, the new designs, uh, in a steel frame, you know, if you're looking at newer saws, the steel frame saws really aren't that much more expensive than the cast iron frame saws that are still being made. So unless you get a really good deal on old iron, you know, an older machine, um, I would say don't even look at those. You know, if you can if you can find a good used machine in cast iron, that might work okay for you and, and could save you a few hundred dollars. But if you're looking at buying a new machine, I'd really be looking at the steel frame saws, not just because of the additional resaw capacity and the, the features that they have and the rigidity that the frame has, but because of that better dust collection. And then your last tool, your last question was on dust collection. Um, for a joiner and planer, you're absolutely going to need it. No doubt about it. And it's not even so much about the collecting the dust, you know, so that you don't breathe it. Um, it, it's collecting the chips out of those machines so that they don't clog. Um, joiners and planers throw a lot of chips and a lot of waste and they will clog without some type of, of dust collector hooked up to remove that material. So you are going to need something. I'd be looking at probably, you know, 
a one to one and a half horse portable dust collector that you can use for those machines and just move it between them. Um, and you know, you wearing a respirator or dust mask certainly would not be uh, a bad idea either because dust collectors only collect so much. Um, and some of that fine dust does still escape. So anytime you're working with machines, wearing a dust mask or respirator, certainly not a bad idea. So our second question comes from Sean and Sean says, I've got an old full-sized handsaw, and I took the handle off for cleaning, but left it for a couple years before I got around to dealing with it. When I put it back together, one of the saw bolts didn't fit at all. I've tried all the combinations I could think of and can't get it to fit. The hole in the handle is no longer aligned with the hole in the saw blade. Everything fit when I first got the saw. The handle is on very solidly with only three of the four saw bolts, so it's not a usability issue but it's such a pretty handle and saw that it would be great if it fit properly. Should I leave it as is, or is there any way you can think of to get the saw bolt back in that wouldn't cause problems with the saw blade or handle? Also, what about saws where the handle is too loose? I've got a bunch of those too. And finally, I've also got a couple hand saws with small bends or kinks in the blade. Not enough to make them cut badly, but they do rattle during the backstroke. So, Sean, let's talk about your first question. So, this is pretty common in older saws where over time what happens is the handle shrinks and the blade doesn't. And what that, what that causes is that the, the holes, the mounting holes, get out of alignment. And the holes in the handle no longer line up with the holes in the blade. I've actually taken apart saws where the the blade itself has actually started to cut into the soft brass saw bolts because the handle shrunk, the blade didn't, things moved, and the handle, you know, as the handle shrunk, it pulled those saw bolts into the steel blade and the steel blade started to cut into, um, into those, those brass bolts. So, uh, you know, I had to drive them, essentially drive them out just to get them out. Um, but then once you get them out, it, it, you know, it's almost impossible to get them back in when those holes don't line up. So what I do is just use a small chainsaw file and I will elongate one of the holes, the offending hole. Uh, usually it's only one. Sometimes it, you might have to do two, but usually you can get away with just doing one hole in the saw blade and you just elongate it until it lines back up with the hole in the handle. And typically this is not going to cause problems with the handle being loose. Um, once everything is bolted back down, the handle's fine and, and you don't have to worry about it. So I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, you know, I would just find a chainsaw file that fits in that hole and elongate that hole until everything lines back up. And then you can remount the handle nice and tight and it should be just fine. Uh, your second question was on loose handles. This is usually a problem of a handle being cracked. Um, if the handle is solid and it doesn't have any cracks, and, and fits on the blade properly, and you can get the saw bolts in, that handle shouldn't be loose. So there's one of two issues is likely going on. The first, that someone replaced the handle and put the wrong handle on that saw, and that's why the, the handle is loose on the blade, because it's the wrong handle. And the saw kerf in that blade was cut for a wider blade, so it might be a little bit loose, or the, the bolt holes don't line up properly. Um, so that could be one reason. If you're sure that it's the original handle, I would be looking for hairline cracks around the screw holes. Usually that's what's going to cause loose handles is somewhere on one side 
of the handle or the other, you've got a crack that goes into the, uh, the hole for the saw bolts. So what you're going to need to do is somehow to pry that crack open a little bit, whether you can get um, a small screwdriver in there just so that you can lever it open a little bit. Um, even if you can just get a, a business card or two or a small wooden wedge in there just to get that crack open just a little bit. And then you're going to want to get some glue down into that. Um, you can use the shop vac trick. Uh, if you've never heard of that, essentially what you need to do is put the shop vac um, on the bottom side of the crack. And this can be tough to do if the crack doesn't go all the way through to the other side. But give it a try anyway. Um, so you put a shop vac on the bottom side of the crack and you turn the shop vac on and you drizzle some glue into the crack and the suction and the airflow through that crack into the shop vac hose pulls glue down into the joint. So you can try that. Um, if you can't, that doesn't seem to work. You can use a glue syringe to try and inject some glue down in there or just a piece of paper or a business card, anything just to get some glue right down in that crack, clamp it up. Um, and then once the glue is dry, you can clean it back up and it should solve the problem of the loose handle. But most likely, um, that's, that's most likely the problem, especially if it's an older saw, it happens quite frequently. Um, and sometimes the cracks are not noticeable, but what you will find is that the handle will be loose because of that crack in a handle and you may not be able to see the crack, but if you look close, you probably find it. Um, and then your last question was about handsaws with small bends or kinks in the blade. So there's a couple things you can do. If the kink is right at the toe, um, oftentimes it's very difficult to fix those because they don't like to, they don't like to come out because it's a, it's a fragile area at the toe of the saw. And if you can manage to bend them back or hammer them out, uh, a lot of times it weakens the saw blade up there and it just ends up kinking again. So if the, the kink is very close to the toe, you could cut the blade down and make it shorter. Um, or you can just try to, to straighten it out. If the, if it's a really minor kink and you don't want to go through the effort of trying to remove the kink or, uh, you don't want to cut the saw down. The other solution is to add a little bit more set to that saw and that should hopefully um, stop it from rattling on the backstroke. Usually when a saw rattles on the backstroke, uh, it has more to do with technique, but if there is a kink in the saw, it can certainly uh, make the situation worse. So uh, I would add a little bit more set to the saw and, uh, and work on your technique a little bit, trying to make sure you're that you're moving that saw in a straight line and not pulling it off to one side or the other on the backstroke. Um, and that should solve the problem. But if it's got a kink um, and it's still rattling even after a little bit of set, really the only solution is to have that saw worked on to either remove the bend or cut off the offending part of the saw where it has a bend in it. So our third question comes from Scott. And Scott says, in episode 11, at one point you spoke about cutting down a saw with a kinked toe. I have several in the same condition. How do you usually cut down a saw? I tried to uh, try to hacksaw once with not so good results. I tried that because I was afraid that tin snips that I see some people use would mess up the tension in the saw. I've also thought about using a file, uh, a file to quote unquote, cut one down. What are your thoughts on this? Also, what are some of the books, videos, et cetera, that have inspired you the most or that you learned the most from? Uh, so I actually, Scott, I think I'm going to save the question on the books and videos for 
another another show because that that might make a good show topic main topic on its own but let's just talk about cutting down a saw so i these days i typically use a, an abrasive cutting wheel in a, in a dremel type tool a rotary tool um, and if you look at some of my most recent blog posts on writing on a, making a tenon saw in the very first one um, i did show a picture of cutting down the steel using that abrasive cutting wheel um, in my mind that leaves the best cut surface because you don't have a bunch of bent metal right at the cut line that you have to contend with so the methods that you mentioned, tin snips, um, I've used those before. They work fine on thinner steel. But again, what ends up happening is you get this area along the cut line where the steel is kind of bent up. And you have to do a lot of work with a file to fix that. And you've got to file past those bent that bent area because you're just not going to straighten it back out. Um, similarly, when you use a file to cut a saw down, essentially what you have to do is create a score line in the metal with the file, and then you snap it at that score line. Well, the the function, the, the motion of bending the steel and snapping it at that score line, again, causes what is essentially a permanent bend right along that score line. So you have to do a lot of filing to remove that bent steel. So um, while I've used both of those methods before, I don't particularly care for them because they create a lot of uh, a lot of extra filing uh, that I really don't want to do. So I use the abrasive cutoff wheel um, in a, in the rotary tool. You can use a hacksaw, and I've done this before. I've done it with the old bandsaw blades, you know, to make frame saws and and bow saw blades and things of that nature. Um, I've done it with full size saws as well. You're not going to be able to just cut the steel, though. What you have to do in order to get a hacksaw to work, to cut through, is to tightly clamp the blade between two pieces of wood. So if you get, like, two just scrap pieces of pine, like three-quarter inch pine from the home center, and cut a couple of pieces of that, take your cut line that you want to cut with the, the saw, put clamp that area, of the blade between those two pieces of wood. So you have one piece of wood on the front side of the blade, one piece on the back side of the blade. And then you're going to use the hacksaw to cut through both pieces of wood and the metal blade at the same time. The wood helps to support the blade to keep it from flexing and bending while you're sawing. That's why it's important that you use that. If you try to cut without having that those pieces of wood clamped on there, uh, the blade is essentially just going to bend and flex and you're really going to have a lot of trouble cutting. But if you clamp it between two pieces of wood, you'll be able to cut that piece of steel with a hacksaw pretty easily um, because it'll be it'll be well supported. And you actually won't have to do, shouldn't have to do a whole lot of filing because you're going to find that you don't have a whole lot of um, bending or damage at the cut line. It actually works pretty well if you clamp that steel between two pieces of wood. So give that a try and I think you'll have better luck with the hacksaw. So our last question comes from Bill. Bill says, I have a need to rehab some wooden planes. The throat gap is too wide in these old planes, so I'm plan planning to resole them. My question's on the size of the mouth opening. I have a smoother jack and joiner planes and wonder if the, the mouth size differs between them. So, um, well, you've got a couple of options for closing up the mouth on a wooden plane. The first option is to install a mouth patch. Uh, and this just 
requires chiseling out a, a small excavation on the bottom of the sole, gluing in a patch, and then planing that patch flush with the rest of the sole. But it sounds like what you're talking about doing is adding a whole new sole to the plane. Um, and if you've got a really damaged wooden plane or, or one that's been worn down quite a bit, this is actually a really good option because it gives you a whole new piece of wood on the, on the sole of the plane. It doesn't, it doesn't keep the patina and the pretty look of the old plane because you're going to have this big honking piece of wood glued to the bottom of it, but it certainly restores the function, uh, in my opinion, better than a mouth patch. So um, if you don't care about the look of the plane and if it's not a particularly valuable plane, which most of these old wooden planes are not, it's very rare that you're going to find a, a truly rare, rare one. Um, you know, gluing on a new sole is a great way to go. So you're going to, you're actually, you know, you're going to want to joint the bottom, joint the existing sole and try and get it as flat um, as you can and then glue on your new sole. And what you want to do is make sure that sole is thick enough that when you start to reestablish the mouth opening from inside of the, the existing throat, that where the, the chisel, where the two angles for the, the front of the mouth, which is called the wear, and the bed, where those two angles meet, you want to make sure that they meet before, the, uh, before they, they break through the bottom of the plane. And that's just, it just makes the job a little bit easier so that you don't have to work from the bottom of the plane at all. So you glue that, that new sole on and you're going to follow the existing wear angle and the existing bed angle with a chisel and just chop down. Um, and you're going to end up making this V shape that will eventually meet the two, the wear angle and the bed angle should eventually meet. When they meet, you can stop and you'll have, if you take your time and do it carefully, you'll have a nice V um, chopped in the bottom of that new sole and nothing will come through the bottom. If you look at the bottom of the sole, it'll still be a solid piece of wood. Then what you can do is start to plane the bottom of that sole thinner. Um, now you can do that with a hand plane or you can pass it, you know, make passes over the jointer if you have a power jointer. Um, and that's how you're going to open that mouth back up. So what you want to do is what I essentially will do is open the mouth until the thickest shaving that I plan to take with that plane will pass through unobstructed. So it is going to change depending on the type of plane typically, because usually for a smoother, you're taking a much finer shaving than you would be for like a jack plane or a four plane. So I think I don't think about it so much in terms of actual measurement. It's just more along the lines of how thick of a shaving do I need to pass? So I'll start opening the mouth of that plane up. I'll put the blade in and I'll try a plane out. If the mouth clogs because the shaving's too thick and there's not enough room, then I'll thin the sole out a little bit more in order to open the mouth up a little bit more um, until that shaving will pass through on un unobstructed. Um, and you can continue to do this and just take a little bit of wood off the sole at a time until everything uh, tunes up real nice. You're just going to want to make sure that um, when you're doing this, that if you are getting shavings that are jamming, that you want to make sure that the, the, the mouth being too tight is the reason for the jamming before you take any more wood off the sole. So make sure they're not catching on the chip breaker. Make sure they're not catching on a, a rough surface on the wear. Make sure they're not catching on the corners of the wedges. Um, you know, 
check all of those things first before you take too much wood off the sole because you could end up taking a lot of wood off the sole of the plane thinking that the mouth opening is causing the problems with the jamming when maybe the shavings are getting hung up on the tips of the wedges or something like that. So make sure that's not happening first before you take too much wood off the sole. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. And I'm actually not even going to, to take a break this week. Uh, we're just going to get right into the main topic in the interest of saving some time. So uh, today's main topic is actually going to be about making your own woodworking tools. Um, you know, it's interesting because you get into woodworking from a, a power tool or machine perspective and uh, there's a huge outlay of cash required. Um, now, no, don't get me wrong. You could do the same thing on the hand tool side and, and end up spending a lot of money on hand tools uh, if you decide to buy everything brand new and high end right out of the gate. But if your budget is tight, um, you know we're 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 lucky because a lot of the tools that we use in traditional woodworking we can make ourselves. Uh, so I want to talk about you know some of the tools that are pretty pretty simple to make. Um, and, uh, you know, I've made just about all of these that I'm going to discuss. I may actually have, have made all of them. I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some options and some things that you can, can actually make yourself and they make good projects and you can uh, save a couple dollars, uh, along the way. Um, so the first one that I have on my list is a marking knife and I've made a lot of marking knives over the years. Um, Spear point marking knives are real easy to make from things like old jigsaw blades. Uh, if you've got an old worn out jigsaw blade, boy, you can grind the grind the old teeth off of that, and uh, you know grind a, a knife blade shape into that. And it doesn't have to be spear point uh, knife. I mentioned spear point knife, but you know it could be a single beveled type of uh, knife as well, and uh, use that that uh, that old jigsaw blade and uh, just grind that into a new knife blade shape that you like and uh, make a handle and epoxy it in and you've got yourself a marking knife for you know pretty much nothing so uh, you can also get real fancy and buy tool steel um, you know i've made several knives from raw tool steel as well you can order uh, oil hardening also known as o1 uh, high carbon tool steel and you can grind it and file it and saw it and shape it to uh, whatever you want. You don't have to worry about overheating it because when you buy tool steel, it's in an annealed state, which is a softened state, which allows you to cut it with hacksaws and, and files and grind it to whatever shape you want. And then you heat treat it uh, at the end to harden it up and uh, make it hold an edge. So uh, marking knives are, are actually a, a pretty easy tool to make. Um, Tri-squares are another one. I did a video several years ago on making a wooden tri-square. You could also replace the wooden blade that I did in that video uh, with a piece of an old um, an old handsaw and make a you know um, a metal bladed tri-square. Uh, they're very easy to make, and in fact, if you have a pair of dividers, you don't even need to have a square to already own a square in order to make a square. And in the video, I show you how you can make a square without already having a square. Um, so, you know, that's a, another neat tool that you can make. Um, and believe it or not, a square with a wooden blade is actually pretty durable, even when used with a marking knife. Once you get used to it, um, you know, you might might cut into the blade a couple times the first few times you use it. But once you get used to it, 
uh, you know, it becomes a non-issue really, and you really don't cut into the blade at all, even when uh, marking with a knife. So wooden tri-squares or, or even a metal bladed tri-square, um, you know, pretty, pretty easy tool that you can make yourself. Uh, similarly, a bevel gauge. I've made these from wood. Um, you know, they're, they don't have to be too precise because, you know, they're, they're not holding, uh, holding a 90 degree angle. So really you're just taking two pieces of wood and more or less attach them together with a, some type of a screw or a bolt that you can tighten down. Uh, they're actually probably easier to make than a tri-square. Marking gauges are another one. I did a, also did a video on making a, a French-style marking gauge that my friend Dean Janza wrote an article for Popular Woodworking on uh, quite a few, quite a number of years ago. And uh, it's a great design because of a, it's a wooden wedge, captured wedge design that allows you to open, adjust, and lock the marking gauge all with one hand. Um, and it's, it, they're simple to make, um, quite durable. And, uh, you know, you can make a whole bunch of them and have a whole bunch of gauges uh, on hand. So it's a, another great tool to make. Scrapers. Um, I've made lots of different kinds of card scrapers. Uh, if you've got an old handsaw laying around that, you know, just isn't uh, worth restoring or you've got a piece, you know, maybe you had a handsaw with a kink and you cut the front end of that saw off. Well, you can take the, that piece of saw steel and turn that into a card scraper with just a little bit of file work. So... Uh, that works great for making scrapers. Winding sticks and straight edges are also great tools uh, that everyone should make themselves. Um, they're they're pretty simple, and uh, you know it, it, they teach you a good lesson in jointing edges straight and uh, you know making how to fix a straight edge, how to check a straight edge, um, and how to plane a straight edge. So, uh, winding sticks and straight edges, pretty simple tools to make. Mallets. Uh, these you don't see too many people making mallets anymore. You could, there are a lot of different styles, though. You can make turn mallets, or you can make uh, mortise mallets. You can even make laminated mallets. Uh, you know, for square joiners mallets, uh, lots of different styles. You used to see a lot of folks online making, uh, you know, writing blog posts or, or in the forums uh, with mallets that they've made. And I haven't seen many in a while, but uh, that may just be me being out of touch with uh, the online communities. But uh, there are great projects to, to make from scrap wood, and you always need mallets around the shop. Burnishers are another one. If you made a scraper, you need a way to sharpen it. Well, after you file that edge and rub it on the stones, you need uh, a burnisher in order to be able to turn a hook. Uh, the higher-end ones are typically made with a rod made of solid carbide because of how hard it is. But really, you, all you need is a tool steel that is harder than the scraper steel itself because the, the harder steel will turn the hook on the scraper. Uh, one very inexpensive and uh, easy to obtain source for harder steel than your scrapers would be old drill bits. Typically they are hardened high speed steel. You can take that drill bit, that old twist bit, turn it around and glue the, uh, glue the fluted section into a wooden handle and use the smooth section for a burnisher, and it works just great. Bit braces are another one. You wouldn't think at first that you could make your own brace, um, and this is actually one that I haven't made myself, but I have used um, braces that were made by, by friends of mine when I was uh, volunteering in the uh, Pensbury Manor Museum back in uh, 
back in Penn, when I lived in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, you can actually make bit braces fairly easily. You know, they're, they're just essentially a, uh, a block of wood that's cut out into a U-shape. You drill a hole in the top to put a, to put a pad in that can spin. And then, uh, you know, you cut a tapered square mortise in the bottom where the bits fit in. And uh, it's really not all that difficult to, to do. Um, so it, you don't see too many people doing it, but, um, you know, if you look at the design of old bit braces, it's actually not too difficult uh, if you want to make your own bit brace. Scratch stocks are another one. Um, you know, molding planes are uh, are the fancy planes that, that everyone likes to talk about. But, you know, if you can't get your hands on some some vintage molding planes that are in good enough shape to restore or you can't afford the uh, the new ones... Scratch stocks are a great way to make moldings by hand that are really cheap. Essentially, it's just a piece of a card scraper mounted in a wooden block. And uh, that card scraper, you know, can be shaped and filed with, you know, just about anything that will will file a scraper blade. Chainsaw files, any type of little round needle files, flat files. And you just file the molding shape that you want, The uh, actually the negative of that molding shape, into your saw steel into that scraper steel mount that in a wooden block and you've got a little essential uh, essentially you know a little shaped scraper that can be used to create a molding so another another simple tool that's easy for us to make in our own shops you can make your own hand planes uh, it, it certainly helps if you already have some hand planes available to help you out with this um, or if you have some old ones that you can use as models. Um, but there are a lot of folks, a lot more folks these days, making wooden hand planes than there were when I got started. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it just goes to show that there's a lot that you can do yourself. And, you know, making hand planes, it's once you understand the geometry of the, the wedge mortise and the throat and the wear, um, you know, it's really just a, a lot of chisel and file work, essentially, to get that shape. A lot of test fitting and uh, and adjusting takes a little bit of time, patience, uh, and a little bit of effort. But you can certainly make your own hand planes. Um, you know, if you if that's something that you want to do, um, saws. Obviously, you know, if you've if you've been following my blog, I've just finished up a series on making a tenon saw. I've been making saws for must be going on close to 10 years now uh, since I made my first saw. So, um, you know, the steel is readily available from just about any type of industrial supplier like McMaster Carr. Uh, you can buy 1095 spring steel. It's usually sh uh, sold as shim stock. And you can buy that and cut that up into saw blade size pieces. There are people making milling brass for blade, for uh, backs, and there are also people who are folding brass and steel for backs. So you can buy backs pre-folded or pre-milled. Uh, the saw bolts are readily available, and then you just need to you know search through your scrap bin for a suitable piece of wood, and uh, do a little bit of shaping of a handle, do a little bit of work with a, a saw file to make some new teeth and sharpen it up. And uh, you can make yourself some hand saws fairly inexpensively and easily. Clamps are another one. We don't think about that too often. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, 
you can't can never have enough clamps in the shop, but we really don't think about making clamps too often. And uh, I did an article for Popular Woodworking Magazine several years ago, and as well as um, for my blog on uh, period clamping techniques. And essentially, what I showed was a lot of old wooden clamps that uh, they used to use for centuries. You know. Uh, for, for all kinds of different tasks. So there are a lot of different clamps that you can make yourself out of wood, anything for, you know, clamping up, uh, assemblies. You can make clamps for clamping up panels, a lot of different styles. Hand screw clamps are great for work holding for different situations. I use a, a big wooden hand screw all the time. So, uh, yeah, clamps are, are a great little tool that you can make yourself uh, sharpening stones. Now, this is an interesting one. There, uh, you can actually make, and, and maybe I wouldn't call them stones. It is kind of a, a scary sharp method or a sandpaper sharpening method. But you can essentially make your own stones. Um, you know, just by cutting up either some blocks of wood, or uh, what I like to use are um, marble flooring tiles from the home center. You can have them cut those into smaller pieces for you. And they're really nice and flat and uh, and heavy. And glue some sandpaper to those and you essentially made yourself some sharpening stones. Um, you know, that will will certainly do the job of sharpening uh, sharpening your tools just as well as any other expensive stone out there on the market. So, uh, we know, one of those things we don't think about but uh, sharpening stones certainly something that we could uh, we could make ourselves. Uh, a lathe, uh, once again, you know, not something you would normally think about unless you're really into the uh, the traditional side of the craft like I am. But uh, there are plenty of designs for foot powered uh, lathes that you can make, whether they are spring pole lathes, uh, which is a reciprocal lathe or uh, or continuous motion lathe driven by a flywheel. Uh, there are a lot of different options and, and plans available for making your own lathes. Uh, and a shave horse is another one. Now, if you're not familiar with shave horses, it's essentially a, a bench with a, a foot clamp. So you can sit on the bench, you straddle the bench, and place your wood, your material that you're working on on the on the work surface, push on a pedal with your feet, and it clamps your work to that work surface, and then you can use things like spoke shaves and draw knives to to shape those pieces while you're sitting on that bench. Um, and it's a great little great little tool or appliance that uh, we can build in the shop. So that's all I have on my list, and I'm sure there are are others as well. But most of these things can be built with fairly simple tools that most people already have. You know, so if there are are tools that you're looking for. Maybe, you know, you've got a saw or two and you've got a, a small block plane, but, um, you know, maybe you don't have a square yet. Well, you know, you can make yourself a wooden square. You know, maybe you don't have a marking knife yet. Well, you can pretty easily make yourself a, a marking knife. You know, so if you're if you're on a, a real tight budget trying to get into traditional woodworking, maybe consider making some of these tools for yourself and that could save you quite a bit of money, um, and it's also a whole lot of fun to do as well. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this, because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your questions and feedback. 
You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com, and you can also use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. You're looking for the show notes for today's episode. You can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt012. And in the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show and links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links for these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.